Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. There's no Andy and there's no Hamid today. Welcome to The Common Rounds. In this episode, we'll talk about memory, a brief discussion how they're formed, where they're stored and how they can be affected. The last part of this episode, we have a quick focus on dementia, the causes, its clinical features and how it presents and its management. Now, memory is classified as either declarative or non-declarative. In declarative memory, there's a recall of either factual or eventful recollection. It's under our conscious recall and non-declarative memory encompasses sort of different skills, motor activities. You can learn these by repetition or imitation, conditioning, and that's not under conscious control. Now, this distinction is very important to make early on because it's a result of different pathways that they formed and it's evident in the patterns of deficits that are produced in different situations, as we will see a little later. Before we discuss these deficits, let's quickly talk about very briefly the way memories are formed and the anatomy of the structures involved. The hippocampal formation is what we'll talk about first and then I'll use this drawing to demonstrate this. Although it would be very helpful to look at an actual image of the, of the uh, anatomy in a textbook, I find it a bit difficult to locate it in images, but um, this is where we are, the medial portion of the temporal lobe. During development of the brain, the almost linear structure folds onto itself to make the squished shape. The hippocampal formation is divided into the dentate gyrus, this part over here, the hippocampus and the subiculum. The entire structure is divided into structures that are arbitrarily named CA1 to CA4 with CA4 lying closest to the end of this dented gyrus and the CA1 labeled on the other end of the hippocampal formation just before the subiculum. The parahippocampal gyrus surrounds these structures. Parahippocampal means uh, around the hippocampal. So as you can imagine, there'll be the hippocampal region and the cortex that surrounds it is the parahippocampal region. The entorhinal and perirhinal cortices also lie nearby these structures. The entorhinal and perirhinal cortices are quite important too. So in this slide, I'll briefly talk about the circuitry. From the C4, a bundle of axons called the mossy fibers synapse into the CA3. From there, they can either be taken away through the fornix or they project, project straight into the CA1 through Schaefer collaterals. From CA1, once again, they can be taken away by the fornix or they could project straight to the subiculum. From the subiculum, they project to the entorhinal cortex or once again to the fornix. Now, the perforant pathway synapses in the CA1 in the dentate gyrus coursing through the subiculum. It sort of perforates the structure to bypass the hippocampus, whereas the alveolar pathway projects to the hippocampus through the subiculum. The perforate pathway is special in that it's understood that long-term potentiation occurs through this pathway. Synapses that fire more frequently are more likely to survive and become stronger. Cells that wire together fire together. My understanding is that this connection helps in moving memory from short to long term because it's sort of uh, repeated firing, making the synapses that form a particular memory uh, stronger. And finally, the fornix, which we've just mentioned very briefly, it projects onto the diencephalic regions of the brain, to septal nuclei that lie around the uh, third ventricle, and they also receive axons from these nu nuclei. There's a lot of crosstalk between them. Similarly, the parahippocampal cortex and the perirhinal cortex act as a bridge between the hippocampal formation and all the cortices of the brain to facilitate integration. They have multiple input and output pathways between them. There's a lot of crosstalk. Well, hopefully I haven't confused you completely, and I would recommend looking at an anatomy textbook. 
but essentially the hippocampal formation is connected to the cortices of the brain via fibers to and from the cortices of the brain surrounding the hippocampal formation in the medial temporal lobe. Let's have a quick talk about the way memory is handled. We can look at this from a temporal basis. On an ongoing manner, the brainstem reticular network and the frontal and parietal association cortices are all involved in attention, which is ongoing, which is which generally would be described as measured in seconds. Uh, memory is then further divided into working and long-term memory. So the working memory or short-term memory, it's it's very difficult to classify them as something that's strictly short-term and something that's strictly long-term. But uh, I'll use one description over here that I read from the anatomy textbook that the working memory is an active form of registration of facts sort of involves these association cortices that we've already mentioned. It's cross-firing from all different patterns of storage from recognition of what's uh, coming in and how it's being um, interpreted. And the consolidation of long-term memory from short-term memory involves the medial temporal structures that we've talked about, the hippocampus and the association cortices. The median temporal structures sort of act as a bridge to repeat fire and strengthen connections in the association cortices to form memories. Now, amnesia is a state of loss of ability in factual recall. It's either retrograde, retrograde if the patient's unable to recall memories from before the precipitating event, which could be something like surgery or trauma, and it's anterograde if they lose memory after the precipitating event. How do we know this? It's mostly by studies that are done in people with lesion in the structure. And to demonstrate this, and to demonstrate this, I'll use a very a very well known case of H.M., a patient who had the medial temporal lobes of his brain resected in an attempt to control his seizures. From the following the recession, the only deficit he had was converting short-term memories into the long-term. He was able to recall everything about his life before the operation, but was completely unable to form memories past the event. He suffered from anterograde amnesia in this particular case because he was unable to form memories after the precipitating event. Very interestingly, HM's non-declarative memory was unaffected. Like we discussed, non-declarative memory is motor skills and language functioning that we normally use to survive. He was able to improve these skills in a given task by repetition, even though he had no recollection of actually doing it. That's because the formation of non-declarative memories occurred through pathways such as the cere cerebellum and the basal ganglia. Now we can quickly discuss memory loss. There are many causes of memory loss and they all have a different extent to which they affect any particular patient. Perhaps the most common cause would be trauma and the location and severity of the impact determines the extent of the injury. In moderate to severe impact to the head, the parent brain tissue and vasculature can both be affected. In these cases, the memory loss is usually temporary and reversible. When the trauma to the head is severe enough, loss of consciousness may occur and the memory of the event may be erased. These traumatic episodes also can accumulate and cause long-term cognitive functional de decline, something that's starting to get a lot of attention in the news in the last few years. Another major cause of uh, memory loss would be neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and Huntington's as mentioned in our other episodes. Vascular diseases such as strokes or quiet transient ischemic infarct may also uh, result in memory losses as part of the brain tissue that are responsible for storing memories and associations start to uh, die out. Some memory loss is also normal. We tend not to remember events that occurred during the first few years of our life and progressively lose recollection of certain events if they're not reinforced.
there are certain memories that you would rather want to forget. I know I have a lot. A deficiency of thiamine can also result in memory loss as diencephalic function may be affected alongside other neurological deficits. Patients suffering from seizures can often suffer anterograde amnesia from the seizure episode and this may progress to cerebral dysfunction. MS, sarcoidosis, herpes, encephalitis all can manifest through memory disturbances too. Very importantly, psychological disorders such as can result in memory loss, best demonstrated in major depressive disorder. Now, how do we try and diagnose the cause of memory problems? Mostly, this can be done through a thorough history. A history of alcohol abuse may suggest dietary deficiency of thiamine and other micronutrients that are necessary for general health. Some patients may tend to confabulate. Confabulation is when the patient begins to make starts to fill in the gaps in his memory with something that they don't actually remember or believe in. It's suggestive of disinhibitory behavior, which is could be a result of the frontal lobe uh, dysfunction. It can happen in conditions affecting the entire brain, such as thiamine deficiency or neurodegenerative disease, very global conditions that affect all of the brain. And it could also happen in uh, cases with frontotemporal degeneration. The temporality of the pathology may also be helpful in diagnosis. A later onset is most likely a result of neurodegeneration or vascular pathology, which may take several years to manifest, whereas a sudden onset could be a result of stroke or infections, prions, uh, I can never pronounce this one, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Depression should also be considered in patients of all age with non-specific memory loss. Laboratory tests generally are not very helpful unless you do a lumbar puncture to look for prions inside the CSF. But otherwise, imaging could also be performed to sort of identify vascular causes or degeneration of certain brain structures such as Huntington's. Finally, to wrap this episode up, I'll talk very briefly about dementia. Dementia is a disorder that can be defined as a condition where you lose a lot of cognitive ability. And these deficits, like any other psychiatric condition, need to represent a decline that affects function and makes it very difficult to live independently by yourself. And some of the criteria that has to be satisfied for someone to be diagnosed with dementia would be things like, uh, very importantly, learning and memory, because as you can imagine, memory and learning are both very important to function in day-to-day life. It would be a decline in your language skills, the way you function by yourself, the way you interact with others. And it's very difficult to sort of diagnose this because there's a very big overlap between dementia and something like delusions or delirium which can sort of present in the same way because in delirium you do get a uh, decline in the function that we've already talked about hopefully we could do an episode on delirium sometime in the future and dementia can be a result more progressive decline in memory and uh, all sorts of other cognitive domains and they like we've already talked about anything that causes Memory disorders also could lead to dementia. We've talked about trauma, we've talked about infections, we've given vascular causes, and we've talked about prions, we've talked about infections, inflammatory autoimmune diseases like MS. Dementia would be more of an end-stage condition. Dementia would normally be very most commonly diagnosed in adults over 65 years of age. It can happen in people uh, younger than that, in cases of stroke or infections, prions, and how would you treat this? The treatment for dementia is generally supportive, mainly because at that point in the patient's life, there's 
irreversible brain damage that has cumulatively resulted in a loss of function. Uh, but the few drugs that we do use to sort of slow the progression of the disease towards a level where independent living is just impossible, there are some drugs that, that are used and they sort of overlap with uh, the drugs that you use in Alzheimer's disease, which, as you can understand, they share a common end stage, which is dementia or loss of cognitive function. So this would include things like cholinesterase inhibitors, like a very common one would be donezepil, as we've spoken about in our, one of our previous episodes, and mimantine, which is a NMDA receptor antagonist. It's proposed to be neuroprotective because it sort of blocks the activation of glutamate uh, inside of the brain, which is neuroprotective because one of the mechanisms of damage in the cere- cere- cerebrum is thought to be uh, neuroexcitotoxicity uh, and progressive ischemia. So mimantidine sort of reduces that, whereas uh, cholinesterase inhibitors slows down the breakdown of acetylcholine, which increases its uh, levels inside of the brain. And the other drugs that have been suggested, antioxidant therapy like vitamin E and other, they have very limited uh, evidence for working. And some anti-inflammatory drugs have also been tried and tested, but once again, the evidence isn't very strong for that. Uh, unless you find a underlying disorder that can be reversed like thiamine deficiency it's the treatment for dementia and cognitive decline is generally supportive well that's it for this episode thanks a lot for listening once again this is the first episode that i've done by myself be very happy to get any feedback any negative comments any way that i could improve but hope to see you next time thank you Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our core editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.